Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of introducing special guest Dr. Glenn Livingston to discuss his new book, Never Binge Again. Reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person. How many of you have struggled with weight gain or felt obsessed with food over the years? Have you found that you've either yourself or have a friend of yours that might have issues with binge eating and then feeling guilty afterwards? If so, you should definitely check out Dr. Livingston's new book, Never Binge Again. This book seeks to teach readers to cage their food obsession so it does not plague them any further. Dr. Livingston is a psychologist and former multi-million dollar consultant to the health industry. He claims to crack the code on binge eating. Dr. Livingston urges you to disregard the self-love approach and gain control over your food monster. During our interview today, Dr. Livingston will discuss the following topic, why we live in a perfect storm for overeating, why rules work better than guidelines, why character trumps willpower, how to commit with perfection but forgive yourself with dignity, and how to end food obsession by starting with only one food choice. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lee. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it all week. Definitely. I, I would say that your topic is very relevant to so many people in our society. When you look at the statistics with people suffering from food addiction, uh, battle of the bulge, uh, just having to, when you look at the health industry, any, anyone who watches TV late at night, how many infomercials are there for health, you know, health industry products? Is it a, be it either a, a working out type, bad type of product or something else? And so I think your book carries a lot of weight in terms of providing useful information to our audience regarding the issue well, thank of binge eating. Thank you. I want to ask you a little about you're welcome. I want to ask you a little about your background. I know you have your psych you're a psychologist, is that correct? I am a psychologist, clinical psychologist. Excellent. I know you've also had a I guess you could say a prior um career with the health food industry. I don't have children and I never commuted, so I had a lot of time for a dual career, so I was a child and family psychologist, but I was simultaneously consulting for Fortune 500 companies in advertising research, including large companies in the food industry and um, some things that I'm embarrassed about, actually. But yeah, so I did all that. I did lots of it. Well, and the only reason I asked you that is not to, not to sh- shed any negative light on you. I was just curious uh, how that influenced you to write this current book. Is it based on your experience? being a consultant with the 
health industry and your in part, background as a clinical psychologist? In, in part, yeah. Um, my background as a clinical psychologist actually obfuscated my progress in curing my own eating problem. Um, but the experience in the in the food industry actually helped me. What I what I got from the food industry was an understanding of how many billions of dollars are targeted at our reptilian brains, like all these hyper palatable food like substances, which are concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins, all packaged up in in something that the advertising industry can spend more billions of dollars to make us feel like we can't live without them. And then the addiction treatment industry telling us that we're powerless over it. So it's, it's like a perfect storm. And I understood from the consulting work that I'd done that, um, that they were really targeting the reptilian brain and that they were targeted in such a way so that we would get the maximum bliss from eating it without the satisfaction without the nutrition to give us the satisfaction and the result is that we just want more and more and more and that's part of why people are looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container and personally i went through about 30 years of a very serious eating problem when i was 17 or so i discovered that if i worked out three hours a day that i just didn't have any difficulty with my weight. I could eat whatever I wanted to. You know, six or 7,000 calories a day, um, boxes of donuts, you know, big bowls of pasta, whole pizzas, sometimes more, um, chocolate, coffee, whatever I wanted to, I could have, and it wasn't a problem, except that I was spending all of my time working out and eating. But I thought that was more, you know, like a superpower than a, than a difficulty. And as I got a little older, and I got married, and I was in graduate school, and I had patience, and I had a two-hour commute. I didn't have the time to work out three hours a day. I just barely had the time to work out a half hour three times a week. And I found that I couldn't adjust my eating accordingly. There's something that got inside me, and these foods seemed to have a life of their own, and I couldn't stop thinking about them. I couldn't stop obsessing about them. Even when I was working with very serious patients, like I, I work with a lot of suicidal patients, and, and that's not just an intellectual endeavor. You really have to lend them your soul. You have to be really present, and I wasn't. And that really bothered me because I'm, I'm from a family of 17 therapists. The running joke is that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, people say if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. And <laughs> so... <laughs> So with all these problems, and, and the doctors started telling me, because I was gaining so much weight and I had triglycerides that were over 1,000, which is about 10 times where they should be, and the doctors were telling me I was going to die of a heart attack in my 30s, and by the time I got to my 30s, if I was lucky. And most of the men in my family had, on my mother's side has, have had heart attacks. And I was scared. I was really scared. So I went for help, but being a psychologist from a family of psychologists, I thought that help meant seeing a psychologist because I figured it's not what I'm eating, it's what's eating me. And so I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a lot of years. I saw all the best psychologists around the New York City area. I went to see nutritionists. I went to see a psychiatrist and took medication. And it was a very soulful journey. 
and pieces and parts were really helpful, but things would get better and then they get much worse. So like, it was like two steps forward and three steps back. And that just, um, that wasn't cutting it. Eventually I decided that I was going to do my own study. So I, you know, I was mostly doing research in advertising and they were paying me a lot of money for it. And I said, I said, well, probably this is a worthwhile thing that I'm doing. So let me do it for myself. And over the course of five years, I funded a 40,000 person study on the internet. And this is back when clicks were cheap. And I got people to tell me what foods they couldn't stop eating and what was going on in their life. What areas of their life were they feeling stressed in? What areas of their life were they feeling happy in? Also some different personality variables. What came out of that were three interesting findings, which I'm going to tell you up front are nothing more than interesting. They didn't lead me to the lead to a solution. But the three interesting findings were, one, that people who struggle with chocolate, and my binges always started with chocolate, people <laughs> who struggle with chocolate tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with, um, with crunchy, salty things like chips and pretzels, they tended to be stressed at work, and people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels and pasta, they tended to be stressed at home. Well, before I started working with people about this, I thought, let me just investigate for myself. And I said, it makes sense that people that struggle with chocolate are lonely and brokenhearted from a personal perspective because I wasn't in the best marriage and I was kind of upset about a bunch of things and I was spending a lot of time alone because my ex was traveling all the time. And so I decided that I was going to investigate further and I asked my mom what happened in my upbringing that might have set up this association. And she got the most horrible look on her face. She said, I'm so embarrassed, honey. I said, what is it? She says, I'm so ashamed. I said, mom, what is it? I said, it's okay. You know, it's, it's 40 years later. It's okay. Well, it turns out when I was about one year old, my grandfather had just gotten out of prison. And my mother was horrifically depressed about that because she'd always idolized him her whole life and she didn't know he was guilty. And he really was. My father was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. This was 1965, I guess. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. And so she was just overtaken with fear and depression. And she said, honey, when you would come running to me crying or needing to be held or wanting, you know, something to eat, I didn't have the wherewithal inside of myself to give it to you all the time. I was just too depressed and too scared. So what I did is I got a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor and I put a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in there. And when you came running to me, I said, honey, go get your Bosco. 
and you go running over to the refrigerator, you take out the Bosco, you'd open it up and you'd suck on it and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And, you know, if this were the movies, mom and I at that point would have a big cry and a big hug and we'd forgive each other and then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. And I wished it was the movies because what actually happened was that my problem got worse. We did have a big hug and we forgave each other and I learned all sorts of things about my mom and myself from that conversation. And as a matter of fact, my anger and self-hatred really loosened about, um, about the foods. It was a useful conversation to have. But the problem got worse. The reason the problem got worse is that I found there was this little voice in my head. It was a voice of justification. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right back and binge. Yippee, let's go do it. And I had a paradigm shift as a result of that. I realized that maybe loving myself then wasn't and nurturing my inner wounded child. Maybe I've been going about it the wrong way for all those years. And I started really investigating the alternative addiction treatment literature. And I found this guy named Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. And I'll paraphrase what I learned from him, but basically he was saying, you can't love yourself then. You can't love yourself out of an addiction because the part of the brain that responds to addiction is the reptilian brain and the reptilian brain doesn't know love. The reptilian brain is sociopathic by nature. It looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. There's no concern for tribe or family or relationships or children or what does eat, mate, or kill have to do with you know, protecting society or accomplishing long-term goals or spirituality or music or art or creativity or contribution to society. None of that. It's just eat, mate, or kill. And all of those things that we think of as uniquely human that are important to us, our identity, like our very sense of self, is much more so in the upper brain, the neocortex, and to a lesser extent, the mammalian brain, which if you think of a visual, the mammalian brain really lies on top of the, uh, of the reptilian brain, and then the, the uh, neocortex lays on top of that. For our audience purposes, uh, for the purpose of our audience, I was going to ask you if you, you kind of already did explain when you referenced the reptilian brain. My understanding of that is that's our most basic, um, earliest part of our brain that deals with in, is it our cravings and our, our, our certain desires, or if you can explain that survival. a little better, just so our audience can survival. Okay, it's, it's survival. So, Perfect. so the reptilian brain is very much like fight or flight, um, eat, yeah. mate, or kill keeps you breathing, keeps you, you know, keeps you moving. It's um, without, without an awful lot of processing that's looking at contingencies or, um, or the effect on, on others in the environment. And whether you believe that God set it up this way or that this is how we evolved, what's really clear is that we're wired so that the brains that are on top of the reptilian brain have the ability to inhibit it so that we can make better decisions. So right on top of the mammalian brain, of the um, reptilian brain is the mammalian brain. And that's really like this, more of the seat of emotion and caring for 
others and coordinating with tribe and um, but then there's the neocortex, which has the especially the frontal lobe, which has the ability to inhibit the impulses. So basically, we're saying before you eat, mate, or kill, what impact is this going to have on you know the people that we care about, and what impact is this going to have on our long-term goals and strategic thinking? And that's how we're wired. So we have the ability to resist virtually any temptation if it's important enough to us. And that was a real insight for me because I, I realized that I'd been accepting, you know, in Overeaters Anonymous, there's this notion that we're powerless over our desires and you know, we have to have sponsors and get to meetings and really cultivate fear. And I realized I'd been cultivating fear of my impulses when what I should have been doing is cultivating comp- confidence. The overcoming an addiction, in my estimation, is it's more like an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger in the pack. And the alpha wolf is the lead wolf in the pack. And if it gets challenged for leadership, basically it snarls down the challenger and says, get back in line or I'll kill you. This is, this is not a love fest. This is not a, this is not a, oh, here, poor baby. I'm sorry that you were wounded as a kid. And, you know, let's have a hug and cry it out. This, this is a take no prisoners, get back in your cage, get back in line. I'm the superior animal. And if you don't, if you don't like it, well, that's too bad. You're going to have to suffer. Um, that, and, and that notion gave me the idea that if I could draw some type of a black and white bright line, because, you know, Trippy was working with drugs and alcohol mostly. He has a book on food, but, um, mostly drugs and alcohol, it seemed to be working. And if I could draw a really bright line, then I'd be able to hear the reptilian brain and I would, I would know when I was being healthy and when I wasn't. So I, I made some really simple bright lines. I think the first one I made was, I will never eat chocolate Monday through Friday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends again. And once I did that, if I, this is an embarrassing part for me, but as a sophisticated psychologist, after all these years, 30 years of suffering, what got me better was if I was not going to have chocolate Monday through Friday, I don't know, Wednesday afternoon, I heard some voice in my head saying for any reason I was going to have chocolate, maybe just because I worked out hard and it wouldn't really have an impact on me or because um, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, which grows on a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Whatever the reasoning was, I would say, I don't want that. My pig does. Chocolate is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. The pig is squealing for slop. I don't want. I don't want. I don't want it. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crude and primitive as that sounds, it gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember who I was, what my plans were, and what was the relationship that I wanted to to have with food. How could I use the present moment to be healthy? And slowly but surely, I got better and better at it, and I didn't feel powerless, and I didn't feel afraid. I actually looked forward to the moments when I would have the temptation so I could stare it down and feel confident and, and in control. And that's how this very sophisticated psychologist and multi-million dollar consultant to the industry wound up recovering from his own food addiction, which was devastating. I mean, I... I almost died from it. And anybody who's really in the throes, 
I mean, this, this technique works even if you just like, want to lose 10 pounds, but, um, but anybody who's really in the throes of food addiction knows that it's like not having a life. It's like someone has a gun to your head and you feel like you have to listen and you have to eat. And then after you eat, you can't stop obsessing about food and, you know, how am I going to stop and how much am I going to have first and how much damage am I going to do and how long is it going to take me to make up for it? And if I'm going to keep going, where am I going to get the next piece of binge food and is it going to be good enough? And, oh, maybe this is the last time I'm going to do it, so it really better be the best one and all of that, all of that. And then all of the guilt afterwards and the perseveration on the guilt and the self-castigation and people don't really understand that that self-castigation actually fuels the binge. We'll talk about that later. But it's like not having a life. And so when you finally get over it, um, you have this presence of mind and you kind of wake up and say, oh my God, I just spent the last 30 years with my head buried in bags and boxes and containers. And um, what now? <laughs> what now? To, so, to your to your defense, the story you're telling is it's, it's very intriguing. Your background, I would say, you know, back in the you said you were probably are you a Gen Xer probably or like your generation? I'm thinking is is around there. No, I, I, th- um, I think I think I think I'm the last of the baby boomer, boomers. Okay, well, I'm a Gen Xer, and I know in terms of our society, 30, 40 years ago, they didn't really focus on any of the foods that processed foods that so many of us have learned to rely on. I don't remember ever having anything bringing to our attention that these foods were potentially toxic to our health and could create an addiction and all these other things. So I think it's interesting that you bring that up from when you were, you know, a year old with your mom. To me, that resonates that back then our own parents didn't probably understand the impact that too much sugar could have on the body growing up over the span of our lifetime or any of those kind of issues. Because I know as as a little kid, I also was given a lot of chocolate and loved chocolate pudding. And I remember my own personal um, battles with that, and which still continue to a certain extent. One of, my, one of the ways I've dealt with it is intermittent fasting, which is something that my doctor turned me on to. That I feel like the thing I like about your personal story that you're sharing so well today, and, and that's part of your, your Never Binge Again book, is we all, we, all, we all have these demons we deal with, and it's how to best approach it. And I like the fact that you have the ability to take the the urge or the impulse and make it something like a pig, as you called it, that you don't want the pig to have that impact. And I think that that one or two microsecond of pausing and and basically uh, creating that kind of a concept can be very helpful for someone. And I guess that as you would say, the pig would be the food monster. Is that the same Yeah, some people don't like to use the word pig. I, I never thought yeah, I was going to publish okay. this, this. Yeah. But this was just a journal that I kept for myself, and I I published it in a strange circumstance, and it really took off. But um, oh, I think that's great. That's phenomenal. You know, so many people um, I feel very strongly can connect to this message because of the information. We wouldn't have a multi-billion dollar health fitness industry if uh, the food we were eating was the best for us. Yeah. When you think of fast food... When you think of things like McDonald's or other fast food restaurants trying to revamp their image because of the fact that they, it's been known historically that the food that they dish out to us is slowly killing us. Uh, to me, that represents a big problem that has to be handled and rectified at some point. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about your book is you, you mentioned that it was a journal or it started out as a journal. 
And I wanted yeah. to, was there anything in particular that motivated you to start the journal itself that led into this actual book being published? Well, when I realized the technique that was working, even just a little bit at first, I was motivated to hear the pig. And so I started to really pay attention and write down what the pig was saying. Because I, re I realized that if I could just recognize that it was the pig talking, that there was no purpose to listening to it, then I could, um, I could beat this thing. So I started writing down everything the pig was saying. And then I started writing down disputations, like what, why what it was squealing about wasn't true. For example, if it says, you can start tomorrow, it's not going to make any difference. Well, first of all, the only time you can eat is now. You only have the present moment. It's, it's always now. So you can't really start tomorrow. You can only start now. But secondly, the principles of neuroplasticity say that what, what uh, fires together wires together. And so that every food choice is an opportunity to either reinforce the pattern or extinguish the pattern. So everything you put in, a mouth is an, in your mouth is an opportunity for either self-harm or self-love. And I would think through these very detailed disputations for the things that the pig was saying. And I, I didn't realize how common the pig squeals were. I, I, I figured that when I started working with clients, that there would be thousands of different pig squeals and it was going to be really hard to help people because I was going to have to go through the same process with everyone. It turns out now that we've worked with, I don't know if we've worked with a thousand clients in this method yet, but pretty close. It, there, there are like maybe 50 of them, maybe 50 squeals across everyone. It turns out our pigs are very, very similar. And, you know, so we have an answer for virtually anything the pig might say. So we've gotten very, very effective at, if people are willing to make this separation, if they're willing to make a rule and which draws a line in the sand and says, this is your pig's thoughts and this is, this is my thoughts. Once they're willing to do that, we can, um, we can help them with anything that their, their pig might say. I like that. I, and I think, I think it really does set a, a tone to how to repro I would say reprogram yourself, but I would say how to effectively approach the urges as they come on. Would that be an mm -hmm. accurate representation? Because that's what I'm thinking. We all have that little inner voice. You know, sometimes you could call it the little devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other, like the old cartoons from mm -hmm. the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, you side with the one and the other one disappears and goes poof. And I'm thinking that that's what this is like when you think of these urges. And I feel like everyone in the audience has some type of urge. If it's not food, it's, you know, nicotine or gambling. And I feel like this could be something that potentially could be used like you said earlier, towards other types of issues, but predominantly for this particular type of food obsession or, uh, you know, having the issue with binging. Uh, one of my questions I want to ask you, in terms of binge eating, and I know that that's something that's different than overeating, I was going to see if you can just explain that briefly to our audience in terms of its impact and what you have found from your experience working with your clients with it. Well, I found that it's more of a um, quantitative difference than a qualitative difference. I don't know that there's really as sharp a line between uh, overeating and um, and binge eating as our, you know, as my profession might make it out to be. Because I think people people really want there to be a diagnosis and a very clear black and white line that either you're over or you're not. Because 
it's really your pig that wants that because gee, if I'm not over the line, then I can keep going until I get over the line. Right? So, so I'm not sure that it's as qualitatively different as it's made out to be. But the you know the definition of binge eating disorder has to do with the frequency, with the level of um, self hatred that that occurs, with the amount and um, and severity of the damage that you cause with, um, you know, the amount of, so there are a whole bunch of criteria and you can just Google DSM-5 binge eating and you'll see the, the definition for yourself. What's more important, I think, is that if people are eating beyond their own best judgment, that, that's the line that I think we need control of because why do you want to eat beyond your own best judgment? Wouldn't you like to make eating something that you control with your intellect rather than your emotions? So I, I'm never going to tell you what to eat. And I, I work with people that eat all sorts of things. I mean, I, I know a guy who, who, who lost hundreds of pounds because he made one decision not to go back for seconds. And he, he could eat fast food three times a day, but he just wouldn't go back for seconds. And do I think that's the healthiest thing in the world? No. But I support him to do that because I think what's paramount is that you move control of eating from your emotions to your intellect. So he made, a, he made a rule. He made a decision that healthy eating for him was anything he wanted to do, but no seconds. And that enabled him to separate his pig from himself and really identify with his constructive thoughts. And you know, then later on, you can add more rules to lose weight quicker or um, you know, adjust the kind of food that you're having or something like that. But... Um, but I don't think there's any purpose to to um, eating beyond your beyond your own best judgment. I think that you can change your food plan anytime you want to. You just present it to your pig as if it's set in stone, the same way that you talk to a two-year-old about never being able to cross the street by themselves, even though you know that when they're older, you're going to teach them how. But it's too dangerous. The, the pig is too impulsive, just like a two-year-old can't even entertain the idea of running into the street by herself or... You know, she could get hurt. I, I really want to draw these lines and make all my food decisions with my intellect and not, have, not be subject to the whims of the environment and the temptations and, you know, some new commercial that the advertising industry comes up with or some new, you know, chemical that is in some food that I didn't know about. Um, I, I think it's, we're just trying to reclaim our power. That's all. There's no no Definitely. dietary restriction whatsoever. So, what is your impression on the organic food movement that's cropped up with Whole Foods and other places in the last ten to fifteen years, and how do you see that uh, assisting people who are trying to move away from binge eating or overeating or being addicted to food with processed foods and those kind of things? Well, I can tell you my own personal experience has been that the more I can get away from an industrial foods and towards like whole fresh, right for our fruits and vegetables. And you know, for, for me, I'm a plant-based person, but um, a lot of my clients, the analogy would be not only the fruits and vegetables, but having organic meats and, you know, things that are as close to nature as possible. The more I can get out of the bags and boxes can, and containers and into the perimeter of the, of the market, the, the better I do. Um, I think that organic is one of the only regulated words that actually means something. 
So I do think that organic is better than non-organic. I know that it's not perfect. I know that it doesn't mean that things are unsprayed in all cases. And there are some situations where a you know crop from a local farmer that's unsprayed would be better than an organic crop that's sprayed with you know supposedly natural substances, which might not be as good for you as um which might be almost as bad for you as the pesticide. So it's it's very difficult to eat healthy in this world. But I I have a guideline, not a rule, but a guideline that I eat organic whenever it's remotely possible because I do think that it's um I do think it's a big step in the right direction. Excellent. I want to get into your book because I'm looking, I've been reviewing it. I want to ask you some questions for our audience. When you discuss in chapter one, the outrageous promise, I wanted you to see if you could explain that a little bit to our audience in terms of what you meant. Um, I believe it's like thinking yourself thin or how to battle your compulsiveness or, you know, um, having issues with eating. I wanted to see if you could discuss that a little bit for us. The outrageous promise is that if you will suspend your judgment long enough to try this one crazy mind trick and try it out for a week or two, that you can install an algorithm in your head that starts to separate out your destructive from your constructive thoughts about food. And it can protect you against not only the things that you're craving today, but things that you don't even know you're going to have trouble with down the road. So if, you, if you'll play with this tool, which is admittedly a trick, it's a language trick, it's a trick of mind, and make that separation, you'll, you'll probably never look back. Like even if you throw the book down, you'll probably never look back because something will take hold. You'll say, oh, my God, I had a little more control trying this than I thought I, w- I ever did. And something is different. I don't quite know what it is. And some people throw the book down, they pick it back up, they throw it down, they pick it up. And I, if people say it took them, I don't want you to do this. I want you to read through the book and just get started so you don't have to go through two years of suffering. But a lot of people say it took them two years to really come to terms with the fact that this is a good thing to have a pig, to decide they have a pig inside them and really separate. So um, my, my promise is it can give you control. This can give you control back. It sense power it can restore your hope and enthusiasm at a time when you're feeling desperate or powerless or um, hopeless. So and I want to reach a million people a year and help them do that. When you bring up, I guess, would, would you call it an alter ego uh, when, you, when you actually create the mental construct of, of your food demon or your food animal or calling it the pig? Is that a way of separating your own impulses from you individually to try to reduce guilt or shame? Well, well, let's talk about guilt and shame in a moment also. Um, the problem with calling it an alter ego, it, it, it's almost there. It's almost right. Okay. But the problem with calling it an alter ego is it's, it's almost like thinking about it as your shadow, which is that constellation of thoughts and ideas that you are rejecting, which are really part of yourself. This is more like a bodily organ. This is more like um, your bladder or your testicles. Like my testicles generate very powerful biological urges, but I don't just let them run amok and, you know, kiss attractive women in the street. They Sure. The same thing with your bladder. Right? You don't pee in your mother-in-law's living room when you have to go. You take control and channel it in a very socially appropriate way and you go to the bathroom. 
So I think of the urges that are generated by the pig and the lizard brain very much the same way that I think of my bladder. It's it's just a okay. very strong yeah yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to integrate that back into my identity. In psychology, when you integrate things back into your identity, you feel a sense of relief, and you're no longer um, expending a lot of intrapsychic energy to keep it separate. You actually want to you want to dissociate from this entity and make it make it um, demote its status. You don't you don't want to elevate it and make it part of you. You want to demote its status. So so it's very different. Interesting. I know that one of the first things you mentioned in terms of your strategy in your book is to create a food plan your own food plan. I want to see if you could discuss that in terms of how it helps and assists with getting started to tackle this issue. Well, if you don't know where your bullseye is, then you're not going to know if you hit it. Like my grandfather says, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to wind up someplace else. The only way that okay. you can hear the, the only way you can hear the pig, a lot of people say, well, I can't tell if, if it's a pig or me. And when I investigate it, they don't have a really clear food role. So if I say I will never have chocolate Monday to Friday, then by definition, I know that any voice in my head that says I'm going to have chocolate on a Wednesday, that's not me. That's my pick. So you need one food rule. You step back and you think, what is my single most important trigger food or behavior that gets me in trouble? For a lot of people, that could be a behavior rather than a food restriction. So for example, maybe I'll never eat in the car again or I will never eat standing up. Or maybe it's not a never. Maybe it's a conditional role. Maybe it's I will only ever eat chocolate on social occasions, at social events. Or I will only ever have pretzels at a major league baseball park. Or maybe it's something you want to always do, like I, I always have five servings of fruit and vegetables every day, or I always meditate for five minutes in the morning when I get up, or I always start my day with two crystal clear glasses of spring water. You, but you need a very clear rule in order to get started. And I, I prefer that people don't try to lose weight right away. I know that people usually panic and they want to lose the weight quickly, but I find that's what's much more important is that people get a, they get a hold of the mental obsession and they learn that it's possible to purge those difficult thoughts from their brain and they see the way that the game is played, and they get good at recognizing the pig. That gives them a sense of power again, and they no longer feel like they're at the mercy of their impulses, like they're at the mercy of the food industry, like they're at the mercy of the advertising industry. They feel like they can make conscious choices. And it usually doesn't take more than a week or two, sometimes a month at most. Once they have that, then you can make adjustments to the food plan, add another rule, make some kind of volume control rule or something. And then you can start to lose weight. But um, I prefer people don't get obsessed with the weight loss right away. And you have to be careful not to lose weight too quickly. It's possible to use Never Binge Again to become overly restrictive. And that's actually dangerous. First of all, if you get overly restrictive with food and you're not getting a nutritional complement of you know, calories and micronutrients and, and macronutrients, you you know, could put yourself in a situation where you're becoming anorexic. And we don't want that. So you have to make sure, and I, I use a site called Chronometer, C-R-O-N-O-Meter.com, where you can check your nutrition and kind of add it up and make sure you've got sufficient calories. And I don't like people to lose more than a pound a week or so, maybe two at the most if they've got a lot to lose. So, um, 
Yeah, that, that's how you, on a very practical basis, get started. You start with one rule, recover your mental composure, your equanimity, and then in a few weeks, you add another rule to accomplish your goal. And you never, you never lose weight too quickly because that seems to trigger an evolutionary mechanism in the brain that says, if we go through periods of starvation where calories and nutrition are not, are not available for some time, then the moment that it is available, we'd better hoard it, we'd better binge which is the only reason that it makes sense that so many people feel triggered by feeling too full. Otherwise, feeling too full should make a stop. But some people have to eat an awful lot more when they feel too full. And I think that's because the brain says, oh, my God, there's finally food available. And this person has been dieting or restricting themselves and hasn't had enough calories. Now, all of a sudden, the food's available and let's, let's hoard. So did I answer your question or did I go astray? Uh, you're fine. Actually, very good. I wanted to ask you, I think, because I think that's the foundation of this, is being able to enact your own strategy, which is what you're talking about in your book. And it seems to me like something that someone can implement pretty well once they break down what their, their food, like a, a food journal. I've been told to keep a food journal before. This is creating your journal ahead of time to try to stick to it, it sounds like, where you set up what your food's what food should be best for your own personal individualized diet plan? Um, it's like setting up an archery target, a really clear target to aim for. And you know where the bullseye is, and you know the very specific boundaries of the bullseye. And then you know where the rungs around it are also. So maybe you have a bullseye that you go for every day, but at a family event, you loosen it up a little bit, but you still know where the boundaries are. So, gee, Thanksgiving is coming up. I've got a lot of people that say, I'm going to have one plateful of whatever I want at Thanksgiving. And I'm going to do that at Thanksgiving and New Year's and Christmas, and that's it. And that way they go in. They don't have to worry about what is on the table. They have one plateful, and then they stop. So I'm not saying that's going to work for everybody. Some people might feel triggered by that. But um, what I am saying is that you don't always have to shoot exactly for the bullseye, but you do not, you have to know exactly what you're shooting for. So you want every rung on the archery target to have a very clear boundary. I like that. Can you tell us a little about how, how you'd recommend that we deal with our cravings for food? Um, if you have a, I might recommend that you have a very specific rule so that you know when this is, you know what healthy behavior and healthy is and, and isn't. And that if you experience a craving for something that's not healthy, that you say that that's pig slop, because by definition, anything that's not on your plan is pig slop. And you tell yourself that you don't eat pig slop. You don't let farm animals tell you what to do. <laughs> That's how you deal with cravings. The other way is you might want to make your plans in the morning. You might want to plan out and prepare some of the food in the morning because willpower is a fatigable muscle, and it's like having gas in the tank. You wake up with a lot of gas in the tank, but every time you make a decision, not just food decisions, by the way. People have trouble resisting marshmallows if they do math problems first. But every time you make a decision, you're wearing down your willpower. And there are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of the day, which is why so many people fall apart at night. So, um, so you want to make as many of your food decisions as you can in the morning. And if you can get an, even an extra two five-minute breaks during the day where you can get away from decision-making, you can get away from people, even if you have to go to the bathroom and lock yourself in the stall for, for a minute or two, um, if you can get an extra couple of breaks to just refresh and restore a little bit like that, you are, 
your decision-making capacity is a little better throughout the course of the day. It'd be much better if you can go outside and meditate or go on. I'm sorry. No, that's exactly, that's actually was even my next question. I was going to ask you how you felt something like meditation or mindfulness could help someone with this type of issue and trying to implement your plan. Well, so first of all, this is, this is going to sound strange, but it's, this is like a back ass words way of hacking your way into mindfulness because you could think of the pig in many ways, like the monkey mind. It's throwing up all this chatter. Gee, maybe you could have this. Maybe you could have that. You really are okay. You can make up for tomorrow. It's got all this chatter and the purpose of that chatter takes you out of the present moment. It prevents you from being mindful of what's happening in your environment. And what you'll find is, even though it's a very rules-based approach, which seems like the antithesis of mindfulness, that when you have made a practice of protecting yourself from all the dangerous intersections in your personal food city, that you can actually drive without thinking about it and just be present. So the end result, and my, my business partner, Yoav, Yoav Ezer says that I developed a hack for meditation because I don't like to meditate. I really don't. I, could, I always had a hard time sitting still like that. But he says, I developed a hack for meditation. The, um, the, the problem is that the, like, I, I think that if we lived in tropical times, you know, or back in the savannah or in the tropics as we were evolving, I think that just eating intuitively would be fine if we didn't have all these artificial substances to, to tempt us. But they're getting stronger and stronger. The advertising industry is getting better and better at selling them. And they're, they're, you, you can't just be mindful and eat what you feel like, and in most cases. Some people do it really well. But because you're, you're just leaving yourself open to, to that onslaught of attack. And when people talk to me about wanting to go back and try intuitive eating, well, it does work. I don't want to take someone out of it if it's working. But if someone has really been taken by binge eating, it usually doesn't work because um, for the same reason intuitive smoking doesn't work. If you, would you ever say, well, just be mindful and smoke as much as you want to and you know, allow as much smoking as you need to. The reason you're smoking too much is because you don't allow it. That doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think that many of these foods are all that much different than smoking. I know they're more socially acceptable, but I don't think they're all that much different in terms of their health impact or their level of addictiveness. So um, I think that's my answer. Okay. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is with any type of struggle, you try to make change. You try to overcome the binge eating uh, in, in the context of your book. And you're successful, maybe 10 days, and all of a sudden you fall backwards. And I noticed your book talks about this topic, so I wanted to ask you, what do you do when you fall off your food plan or you fall off your, as you, you know, your, your target of uh, trying not to be falling backwards? What would you, how, does your, how does your book basically discuss addressing that type of, a, of an issue? Well, what you have to be careful of is that your pig wants to tell you that because you're not perfect, you're nothing. See, after a mistake, progress, not perfection, is the important attitude 
to have in order to recover from mistake, the mistake and be able to make another commitment. But before you make a mistake, when you're making the commitment, you want to commit with perfection. So what happens after a mistake is the pig looks for everything you've done wrong and tries to pound the gavel and hold you in contempt and, and make you feel too weak, like you're too much of a pathetic character to ever do this and you're going to have to binge some more. You're too weak to resist the next binge. And so it gets you overly involved with the guilt and the shame. On the other hand, there's a purpose to guilt and shame. And it's, it's okay to feel it for a minute or two, just like it's okay to feel that little bit of pain when you touch a hot stove. When a, when a child is born with a disorder where it's unable to feel pain, it's unlikely that child is going to live more than five or six years because they just aren't able to pay attention to what they need to pay attention to in the environment not to get hurt. So you want to feel pain for a moment or two, but then you want to let go of it. So you don't want to throw your hand down on the stove and say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher and I might as well just um, put my whole hand down, burn my whole hand off. Just like if you accidentally chip a tooth, you don't want to go grab a hammer and bang the rest of them out. Or if you are hiking up a mountain and you slip and fall, you don't want to say, let me just roll down the rest of the mountain because there's no point. I, I fell down, so I'm pathetic and there's no point in even trying. The other thing you have to watch out for is the pig will say, well, you've tried a thousand times before and you've always failed, so you're never going to get this. Well, first of all, the research on weight loss suggests and if you look at two groups, people who've lost weight more or less permanently versus people who lose it and gain it again, the people who lost weight permanently are more likely to have tried more often. So they have more attempts behind them. So it does seem like from an empirical basis, the number of attempts that people make is very correlated with how successful they're going to be in the long run. There's, there seems to be a process by which people have to look at every binge as a learning experience if they're really going to recover. And it really makes sense because there are two lenses from which you can look at a mistake. You can collect evidence of failure. And if you collect evidence of failure, then you're going to develop a failure identity and you're going to be looking for more evidence of failure. And that's what your pig wants you to do. Your pig wants you to collect evidence of failure and feel like you can never do this. If you collect evidence of success, what that looks like is, you know, maybe I had 5,000 calories instead of 15,000 calories, or maybe it lasted for a day instead of five days, or a month instead of five months. Whatever it is, if you collect evidence of success and you ask yourself how come, and you learn from it, and you stand up and you readjust your target and you aim at the archery target again, you, you have to get better. Like if you get up and keep aiming at the bullseye, the nature of our neurology is a learning machine. And you have to get better and better. The, the reason that people don't is they get thrown by what their pig says. Either the pig makes them feel too guilty, gets them too involved with it, and they don't really try again. They just binge more. Or else they're uh, confused about the nature of addiction and they think that they're powerless and they think they should be cultivating fear. Um, or else they're eating the wrong foods. They're, they're trying to control some substance that they're really addicted to and would be better off without. So, but you, you'll learn, you will learn. So uh, commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. Um, dust yourself off, figure out what went wrong. 
get up and commit again. That's what I suggest. Well, and I like the way you describe that because it feels almost like you could have a, a, a element of forgiveness to yourself while you struggle to get through this. And that you, you take what you deal with, if it's, instead of calling it a setback, calling it a learning experience and growing from that, it's, it's like being on a long journey down a, a very rocky road. And there might be sometimes you stumble, but if you pick yourself back up, like you said, brush yourself off, commit to going forward and looking at it as a step in, in the process and you make progress over time, eventually it's something that you can master and get beyond. You really have to. You really have to. It's almost impossible to keep binging if you refuse to yell at yourself in the process. That's interesting. And it also, you know, what I find, and I, I can relate to everything you're talking about today, because I think so many of our listeners probably can, we've all had something we struggle with. Sometimes there's people who look to food to comfort that, like you said, that absence of whatever it is that's lacking in their life. And they can comfort themselves, their favorite bag of potato chips or processed foods. I live in Florida. And anytime we're under I'm moving there in Friday. I'm I'm moving to Florida on Friday, by the way. Okay, great. Yeah, I live in Tampa and I've lived here for over twenty years. And anytime we're under threat of a hurricane and the media shows like last year we had Hurricane Irma threatening Tampa for a significant period of time. Luckily many of us weren't as as badly impacted as other parts of the state. But when we were under that hurricane warning or in the cone of probability, so many people run to the grocery store to stack up on non perishable food. And I noticed, even I'm including myself in this, you go and look at everyone's, you know, grocery cart, uh, and you're looking at it, and everyone's got the Doritos, and they've got all the processed foods, and the cheeses, and and the Twinkies, and they're thinking, mind, this is non-perishable, but they're not thinking about their health at that point because they're under such severe stress that they're they're going to go run. It's like the 7-Eleven diet, you know, grab whatever you can just to sustain yourself. But I also think that's a comfort choice too. Because if you're dealing with so much significant uh, pressure, you know, that's obviously something that would be a challenge for someone going through this kind of a process. But once again, it's like even the holidays. So many people put on 10 to 15 pounds during that six-week period between Thanksgiving and New Year's. And it's because we're taking off, going to all these Christmas parties and celebrating. And then you'll start the new year with one of your resolutions going to be, I'm going to lose the 15 pounds I just put on. So it, it, it is a, it is a, a process, but I like the way that you, you determine that it's something that you could look at it instead of it's just a stumble, just look at it as something to move forward with and learn from. So you can over the long I think term. There, yes, exactly. That, and I think there are more, I think there are more heart attacks the day of Christmas and the day after than any other time of year. Wow. People are thinking, they're I thinking mean, it's just a one-time indulgence. Correct. Uh, that's interesting. Let me do the opposite. Instead of being focused on stumbling, what about someone who uh, I think you call it the deprivation trap. Someone mm-hmm. who is really trying to follow this plan and they don't, they're overly rigid. They don't want any chocolate. They don't want anything. And what do you recommend to them? Well, if it's going well and they're meeting their health goals and they're not too thin and the doctor's okay with it, then I don't necessarily have to recommend anything if they're, you know, if their diet is fully nutritious. And there's no doctor out there that says you've got a deficiency of sugar and flour, right? So, so, you know, people don't want to have sugar and flour. I'm okay with that. I mean, I I know that's a little extreme, but um, I don't really see that there's any need for refined sugar and flour in the human diet. So um, I don't really worry about people being too restrictive in that way. 
I do worry if they're getting too thin. I worry if they're losing weight too fast. And I worry if they're not getting the nutrition that they need. Some people are trying to be too strict and are feeling very uncomfortable all the time. And if you're going to lose weight, you're going to be uncomfortable sometimes. I usually like to tell people that they should make their pig suffer and not themselves. And it's time for payback and you know, who cares if the pig is unhappy. Um, sometimes I'll tell them if they're hungry in the evening to grab their stomach and think about, uh, okay, well, this is where the calories have to come from, so let it burn, baby. Just grab it and say, let it burn. <laughs> but if they're going too fast and it's too hard, then I'll work with them to loosen up a little bit. And maybe that involves making a 20% adjustment. Maybe it means um, you know, allowing a little more of the healthy food that isn't really triggering for them. Some people will try to have three meals a day with nothing in between. Sometimes they'll change that to four meals a day. It's, it really depends upon the person and the specific situation. So just investigate really carefully and try to see, um, try to see what they need. But you, you do have to meet your authentic needs. So when I gave up chocolate, for example, I eventually got to the point that I just said, I'll never have chocolate again. And that was one of the best things I ever did. It was really hard for about a month. I, I had intense cravings, or my pig did. And then it got a lot less. About six months later, I hardly ever had a craving, but once in a while I would. Two years later, I don't even remember what a craving feels like. It, I look at a bar of chocolate, and it looks like a big bar of chemicals to me. And I think the reason for that is that our, our neurology is set up not to crave things that it knows it's never going to have. Like a prisoner with a lifelong sentence doesn't want hope because hope is painful. We, hmm. we don't, our pigs don't want hope for things they're never going to have because it's just a waste of energy. So they're going to stop banging their head against the cage and they'll put that energy into some other, other thing that they think they could have. And that, that's, why you're, that, yeah, that's why your head gets quiet when you start doing this. That's where your head gets so much quieter. And I could also say it would take a lot of pressure if you feel like, and I think you mentioned the time frame of 30 days, you had the intense cravings. Is that with the different clients that you've worked with, have you found that that was pretty common? Like what time frame does it usually take when you start this type of thing for someone to start noticing, other than the weight loss, um, noticing success? It's usually sugar, flour, salt, and caffeine that are the troublemakers. And it depends whether they're trying to manage them conditionally or trying to get them out of their diet entirely. When, if you go from having a chocolate bar every day to having chocolate on Saturdays, then you're not going to lose the cravings anywhere near as quickly or as completely as if you don't have it at all. There's a phenomenon called downregulation and upregulation. What happens when you present a supersized stimulus to your pleasure system? And there, like I said, there are no chocolate bars in the savanna. It's a concentration of sugar and fat and theobramine, caffeine, and all types of different uh, food-like substances. They, they, what happens is your, um, your taste buds become less sensitive and your your pleasure system in the brain becomes less responsive. It's like when I went to graduate school, I lived almost underneath the subway. And when I first got there, I had no idea how I was ever going to sleep. But after the first week, I didn't even hear the subway because my brain said, you know what, Glenn, that subway noise is not relevant. It doesn't signal danger. It doesn't signal the availability of any food or other good resources. There's no reason to pay attention to it. Let me downregulate it. That's what happens when you make sugar so plentiful in the environment, the 
brain says, well, we don't have to pay that much attention to it anymore because it's obviously always available. Let's pay, let's focus on some other stuff. And you get less and less and less responsive to the point that um, you don't feel like fruits and vegetables are tasty anymore. So you, and you really can't taste the difference between the different species of fruits or vegetables and, and an apple just doesn't hold any appeal for you anymore. And people will go to the point of saying, I don't even like fruits and vegetables. When this gets really bad, people get to the point where they feel like they don't even get pleasure from eating the chocolate anymore. They just need the chocolate to feel normal. That's how they would describe it. It's like they have displeasure without it, but they don't have pleasure with it. And that's a really sad thing when you, when you see that go to that level. But the good news is, is that if you let go of it, I believe there's research that says somewhere in the six to eight week range, your taste buds double in sensitivity and then your neurology adjusts and you upregulate and you become more and more sensitive. And so when I gave up chocolate, I started to make a big banana and kale smoothie, a whole bunch of ripe bananas and some kale, kale juice. And I at first thought that was really disgusting. <laughs> but I can't believe I'm actually. And then a week later, it wasn't so disgusting, but I didn't really like it, but I just did it anyway. A month later, I started to crave the kale and banana smoothie. And now I just love it. I can't wait to have it. So your pig will say, if you give up chocolate, since we're just using that example, if you give up chocolate, you're going to suffer forever. But it's not true. Your taste buds are going to adjust and you will taste nuances and flavors that you couldn't imagine existed before. And you'll feel like it's very much like the movie, The Matrix, where you were totally sure life was one way, but you decide to take, is it a little blue pill or a little red pill? I forget which one he takes. Um, I remember. You, take the pill that, <laughs> you do? Yeah, I don't remember yeah. what, I think it's the blue pill, if I, if I recall. Okay. But. So you, you take the blue pill and you wake up and you realize that the machines are controlling us and life is totally different than you think it is and you're, um, you're in a whole different world. So I suggest people take the blue pill. I really like that. I um, We're running low on time, so I wanted to ask you, if anyone's interested in learning more about you or more about this information, what would be the website, like where would you refer them to go online? Well, I've got a lot of, I have a lot of free things that I like to get people started with. So I, I do have paid coaching programs and such if you need it, but I start people with a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. You can get that at neverbingeagain.com if you click the big red button. But when you do that, I'm going to do two more things for you. I'm going to send you a set of free recorded coaching sessions so that you can hear what this process is like in practice because it sounds really harsh and weird when you talk about it in theory like we're doing today. So um, you'll get that. And you'll also get a set of free food plan starter templates, which are sample rules you might use for any particular diet that you might find yourself wanting to adhere to, whether it's you know, paleo or ketogenic or, um, you know, macrobiotic or high carb or um, vegetarian, wh whatever it is, point counters, calorie counters, wh whatever you want to do. We have a set of starter templates that you can see the kinds of rules that work for people. And then um, you need to make adjustments to them for yourself so that you really own it. Because I don't want to tell you what to eat. I'm, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist or a medical doctor. My, my PhD is in clinical psychology. I'm a scientist practitioner. I, I learned how to evaluate science in my years and actually taught a good deal about that. But, um, 
but I'm, I don't have the medical background or nutritional background to tell you what to eat. So that's up to you. What I, what I think you do have the background is to give us the ability to have a better understanding of our cravings and to implement, control those cravings and start a new direction. And like you said earlier, yeah. I, I believe real strongly in paradigm shift. And just like taking the right colored pill to see where your awareness is and your self, I guess self-awareness would be a good way of phrasing it, of what you're really dealing with and what you're up against. And I, I feel like this is a good start in the right direction for anyone interested. They should definitely look at your information and see what resonates with them. And then check out your website. I, I think it, it's great to implement healthy changes uh, and, and start a new path that can really lead you to better health overall. And so that's where I think this is very powerful and can help a lot of people. Absolutely. I, um, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I would say that, um, are you, do you do events to promote your book or what type of, um, do you have any events coming up or anything like that? Uh, you know, I'm moving to Florida on Friday and I'm planning to do some in-person events in Florida, probably in the Orlando area, like near, near Disney because okay. everybody wants to go to Disney also. So we'll probably do that in late January is my guess. I was going to say, keep me posted. I'm only an hour away. I live in Tampa. So <laughs> I would love to, yeah, we're gonna have, to learn. We're going to have your... lunch. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to find out about any of your events and, and, you know, let our audience know about that for anyone who's local here in Florida, but that's great. I want to thank you for coming on the show and discussing your new book with us and covering this topic. I know, as you said, there's um, a lot of different concepts that are tied into this, but I feel like you have boiled that into a really nice discernible platform to understand it. And that's what I think is really great about your book. I like it. Um, discussing this topic today is very motivating for me going into the new year and going through the holidays. I think, you know, now I could think of it as my own little food animal, food monster, <laughs> whether or not I call it a pig or something else. As I have my cravings when I go to these different gatherings, I can definitely exercise some better self-control. Yeah, but food demon is the alternative people usually like, food demon. Uh, it, it was well, wonderful to talk to you. I appreciate you having me on. And um, Thank you. Any time you want to do it again, just let me know. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on, and have a great night. You too. Thanks. For coming on the show and discussing his new book, Never Binge Again. I believe that the topic is very relevant, as many of us are plagued by cravings. Many of us overeat. We perhaps aren't as mindful as we need to be with our eating habits, including yours truly. And anything that we can learn about to gain a greater understanding of our habits and implement positive change through healthy choices represent that paradigm shift that I always feel is very important in our lives. I uh, encourage you to, as the audience to check out Dr. Livingston's go to his website and to think about this topic as you approach the holidays and go through the different uh, challenges that await us uh, even into the new year. And the one thing I'll say, no matter what you may at times feel like you're struggling with and you don't think you could get beyond it, if you really put your mind to it and implement change over time, you can definitely overcome any obstacle that's set before you. With that said, I thank you for listening to our show and look forward to bringing you additional guests and content in the future. If you have any questions about this episode or any other episode, you can always reach me directly at info 
at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. You can check us out on our social media, Instagram, and there is also the Social Psychic YouTube channel, which will be more active in the, in, after the, uh, 2019 starts up. But I just want to thank you for listening to our episode, and thank you for supporting our, our show. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.